And turn to Romans chapter 8, please. And try to move along quickly at this point. But thank you for listening to my, my testimony. And You know, I, as I started this ministry and as I've talked to people in churches just like yours, I, I, I need to count, but I, I think I've preached in about 200 churches here in Georgia uh, about this issue. I, I run into something similar at most churches. People are responding one of three ways to what's happening in our country. The first is worry. You know, oh, Brother Paul, I'm just so worried about the direction our country is going. I'm just so afraid that, you know, my grandchildren won't inherit the same country that I, that I knew. Um, and and I, I'm a, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm a little concerned too. I think if you're not concerned, uh, you're probably not paying attention, Right? However, don't we understand there's a point in worry when it becomes sin, and we should avoid that. A second response is anger. Oh, so angry with what's going on. Oh, these politicians, you know. Uh, most church seems to have somebody in the church that's really angry that everyone else tries to avoid. You know, there he is. Uh, and, and look, I'm, I'm pretty upset about what's happening in our country. Uh, and I'm doing something about it. I mean, I just was in Washington this week and, and trying to do something about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm fired up about it. But, but we understand, don't we, that there's a point in anger when it becomes sin. And we need to avoid that. The third reaction may be, I don't know, the worst. And that is apathy. That's this cynicism that Oh, Brother Paul, there's nothing that we can do. You're wasting your time going to Washington. You're wasting your time trying to deal with these politicians. There's no point in getting involved. I'm not going to sign up for your newsletter because yeah, I don't see any point in that. In fact, I don't even bother voting because my neighbor vote just cancels out my vote anyway. And, and there's just no point. And you know, <clears throat> if I'm being honest, I think that's exactly the attitude the devil wants us to have. Oh, you, you can't make a difference. Oh, there's no point in you paying attention to that. Oh, just, oh, just go hunting this weekend. Just go fishing. Just go do your thing, whatever it is you do. And don't worry about that, right? Apathy. And I don't think any of those are proper biblical responses, but I want to give you what I believe is right from the Bible, how Christians should view our government, and, and how we should respond to the direction our country is going in. But by way of introduction, let me, let me just give you a couple of points. It's, these are not my main three points. These are my three introductory points, all right, just to kind of frame the message. Number one, we need to recognize that we are citizens of two kingdoms. As American Christians, we are citizens of heaven, and with that comes privileges and responsibilities, and we're citizens of America. And with that comes privileges and responsibilities. I, I think when we, when we ignore what's happening in our country, when we, when we refuse to, to vote and, and be involved, I, I believe we honestly, we do a disservice and we dishonor those who have fought and bled and died for these very freedoms and rights that we enjoy. Recognize we're citizens of two kingdoms. Secondly, we need to realize that we are to be good stewards of what God has given to us. The Bible, the Bible calls us stewards, caretakers. 
Now, normally when we hear a message on stewardship, it's, it's specifically about money and finances and tithing. And we are to be good stewards of those things. But I also believe that we would be good stewards of some other things. How about our talents and abilities that God has given to us? Your, your pastor mentioned using your abilities for the Lord. We may all have different levels of abilities and talents, but whatever we have, we're to be good stewards of those. We, we all have the same amount of time, and the Bible tells us that we should redeem the time and be good stewards of the time God's given us. And I also believe that we are to be good stewards of the religious freedoms and other things that we enjoy here in America. And I also don't want you to, uh, by way of introduction, my third point is to remember God is still in control. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands about what's happening in America. God has a purpose and a plan. I don't know that I know what that plan is, but I believe he has a purpose and a plan for your life. I believe he has a purpose and a plan for this church, and I believe he has a purpose and a plan for America. And that takes us to the scripture I want us to read this morning, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 28. Now, I'm going to read aloud as you follow along in your Bible. Uh, this idea that God is in control and God is sovereign. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then? To these things, would you pause in your reading and look up at here at me for just a moment? What shall we say then to these things? To what things? Well, to this tremendous statement and passage on, on the sovereignty of God. That God is in control. That God has a plan and a purpose. That God has called us to be more like him and to serve him regardless of the circumstance that we live in. But as we look around and we see uh, the deterioration of our, our country's values, deterioration of our, our, our rights and privileges as Christians and believers, the deterioration of just general morals in our country, uh, what shall we say then to these things? Well, finish the verse. If God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't it a wonderful promise that, that it doesn't matter who's against us? It doesn't matter the powers that that are against the cause of Christ, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? So let me give you the three points I want to give you as to, well, how should we respond? Brother Paul, you said that's how we should not respond. How should we respond? Well, I'm going to answer your question. Point from a biblical, a biblical basis. I'm going to give you Bible verses. Number one, we are to intercede for our elected officials. Pray for elected officials. This, of course, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you got your Bibles, you might want to turn there. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings... And for all that are in authority, we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Intercede for our elected officials. Pray for them. Doesn't the Bible clearly command it here? The kings were the political leaders of the day. In our world here in America, it's the elected officials. 
that make the laws and the rules and the regulations. And God here clearly commands that we're to pray for them. Now, I mentioned that I, God's given me the privilege and opportunity to preach in a couple hundred churches here in Georgia. And as I go church to church to church to church to church, here's what, I, here's what I've come to conclude about. We're, we're not doing this. We're not praying for our elected officials. Now, now, now I, I recognize I'm a guest here with you today, and I, I don't know your personal prayer life, but, but why would I say that then? Well, because the people I meet in churches just like yours have no idea who their elected officials are. So how can we be praying for them? I mean, we, we talk about congressmen. You have a congressman from up in this area, a congresswoman, I think, in your case. You have a state house member, a state senator, two U.S. senators. Uh, most Christians I know in our churches, Bible-believing churches, couldn't name those five people that represent us. And God says we should pray for them. I believe we should pray for them spiritually. Now, you might not know exactly what their spiritual condition is, right? Uh, I, I would recommend you pray like I pray for some of my loved ones who I care about, and I want them to be in heaven, and I'm not really sure where they're at spiritually, right? So I pray God revealed to my brother, revealed to my sister-in-law, revealed to whoever, Reveal to that person what their spiritual need is. I don't necessarily need to know. That person needs to know, right? We can pray that same prayer for elected officials. Reveal to to that person what their spiritual need is. They need to be saved, then then show them that. They just need to get right with you, then, then reveal that to them. Pray for their spiritual needs. Pray that they would do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. I mean, wouldn't it be great if our elected officials walked in a way, voted in a way in which they knew they were going to have to answer to God for it? Well, are you praying that way? Pray for our elected officials. Point number two is simply influence as salt and light. Number one, intercede for our elected officials. Two, influence as salt and light. This, of course, is found in... Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the greatest sermon ever given because it was delivered by Jesus himself. And I want to read beginning in verse number 13 through verse number 16. So follow along in your Bible as I read aloud. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Here we have Jesus saying, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt is lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but, under, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Point number two, influence as salt and light. Jesus commanded us to be salt and light. What does that mean? Well, I don't know if maybe you've heard a message on this before, but I think to understand the first part of that, salt, we have to understand salt in Bible times. I mean, today. We don't think much about salt today, do we? Just shake it on our vegetables or popcorn. Some, some, some people actually put it on watermelon. What's up with that? I mean, I'm a watermelon? Oh, come on. 
uh, I'm, I'm joking. Can I get a grin or a smile or something out of you guys? All right. Uh, salt, we don't think much about it. But in Bible times, salt was way, way, way now I got people back there arguing about salt on watermelon. Try to, try to focus here, okay? Try to focus. Uh, in Bible times, salt was incredibly important. It was used to preserve food. Without the modern refrigeration and other types of preserves, preservatives that we have today, salt was needed to preserve food. Let me tell you how important salt was. Our word, our English word salary, the, the pay you get for your job, comes from the Latin meaning salt money. I mean, it, it was that important. It was like currency, right? So salt was, was an incredibly important product used to preserve food. And I believe that God has left us as Christians here on earth to be a type of preservative. We're to preserve what is, what is good, what is, what is holy, what is just and righteous. I'm going to give you a personal illustration. I hope you all don't mind personal illustrations. You ever get personal illustrations, Brother, Brother Alan? I, I like personal illustrations. So uh, my two daughters are now grown and, and out of the house. And so my wife and I are empty nesters, which at first was a, a bit hard to get uh, used to and adjust to, but we kind of like it now. Uh, and uh, we do have a dog that keeps us, uh, we treat, you know, like a grandchild or something. I don't know. Sometimes I think this dog runs the house, but uh, be that as it may. Uh, when my, my wife, she, she doesn't cook as much as she did when we had kids at home. But when she does, there's almost always food left over, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? So, so do, you, do you do this? Here's, here's what I do. I take that extra food, that leftover food, and I put it in one of those plastic containers, right? And I did this just the other night with meatloaf. I put it in a plastic container, and I had it for lunch the next day. And, and that's what I do, right? I put it in one of those plastic containers. I put it in the fridge, and too often... I end up throwing it away two weeks later, right? Y'all ever have that happen to you? Where you forgot about it, uh, so you planned to have it for lunch, but something got put in front of it, and something got happened, and, and next thing you know, it's shoved to the back, and you're reaching back in the back of the fridge, and you're pulling this out and going, oh, oh it's all purple and fuzzy and smells bad. You had that happen to you? You're looking at me real spiritual, like you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, if you had that happen to you, uh, you know what my mom used to do when I was a kid? She used to take Cool Whip containers, right? The plastic, like, no need to throw those away. I'll just put the peas in there. And I think we had Cool Whip or something. I'm like, oh, and it was old peas. And oh, man, it was the worst. But, but if you've had that happen to you where you, you opened up a container and it was all spoiled food, I'm guessing you didn't think to yourself, I need a new refrigerator. Why? Well, unless everything in the fridge looked like that, you understand that the corrupting influence on food is so strong, so pervasive, that even when you try to save it, sometimes it still goes bad. And yet, when it comes to our culture, when it comes to our government, sometimes even when it comes to our churches, one thing goes bad and we're like, Throw it all away, right? It's all rotten. Well, hang on. Maybe not. Maybe there's that which is worth preserving. 
And I think God has left us here to be a preservative. Jesus also commanded us to be light. Well, what does light do? Well, light exposes. It exposes what is dark, what is dirty, what is corrupt. In fact, Jesus also said, men love darkness when their deeds are what? Evil, right? The darkness covers the evil. But we as Christians are to be light. We're, we're to shine a light on that corruption. Shine a light on that sin. Shine a, shine a light on that which is evil and dark. Again, a little personal illustration, if you don't mind. Um, let's say that uh, my wife and I are uh, going to have company coming over on, on a Saturday night. right? We're, we're going to maybe have the pastor and his wife come over to our house uh, on Saturday night for dinner. What, what are we doing uh, during the day on Saturday? You saying I have a dirty house? Of course, we're cleaning up, right? And when you're going to clean up, how do you have the light on your, on, in your house, right? You open up all the blinds, you turn on lights. You want to make sure that you catch everything, right? The, the dust on the baseboard and mantle, the, the cobweb that you didn't even notice was up in the corner, whatever it is, uh, you know, you're going to get things cleaned up. Now, when the company comes over, how do you have the light? Yeah, ambiance, right? That's Latin for hide the dirt. No, I made that up. Uh, no, we we want to we want to we, we might have missed something, right? So let's let's turn the lights down a little bit. I'm being a little silly, but I'm trying to make a point. God God wants us to be light. What kind of light do you think He wants us to be? Yeah, I think He wants us to be that bright light that exposes the dirt and and what's wrong and what needs attention. I'm afraid that the American church has become such an ambient light that we blend it in to be so much like the world, we're not casting much light on the world. Jesus commanded us to be salt and light. I want to give a Bible illustration before I get to my last point. And this is found in the book of Esther. If you don't know the story of Esther, then I encourage you to turn to Esther chapter 4. But uh, Esther is a pretty neat story. Uh, of this young Jewish girl who was raised by her cousin Mordecai uh, in this foreign land where they were both foreigners. And uh, through the hand of God, this young Jewish girl becomes queen in this foreign land. Of course, the king doesn't realize she's a Jew. But Mordecai, her cousin, who was like a father to her, gets in trouble with Haman. You remember Haman? Boo. You say Haman, you say boo, right? Like, like he's the bad guy. Um, Haman was kind of like the prime minister under the king. That's how I would describe it. And, and he got really angry at Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And there's a lot more to the story. If you really study that out, it goes way back to the line that Mordecai came through and the, and. and uh, and, and Haman, and it goes way back. But he refused to bow. And, and, and Haman, in his anger, convinces the king. I kind of think he tricks the king. I don't know what you think about that. But I, I kind of think he tricked the king into making a decree that all the Jews in that kingdom could be put to death. The sentence of death applied to the queen herself. right? So, so Mordecai goes to Queen Esther 
who's like a daughter to him, appealing to her that, look, you're queen. You, you should be able to do something about this, this edict that, that we must be put to death. And, and Esther is a little bit slow to act. You remember why? Because anybody who, who approaches the king or comes to meet with the king who hadn't first been called by the king risks being put to death even if you're the queen, no exception. So she's a little hesitant. I kind of understand that. I, I'm one that gives Esther a little slack here. I, I would be a little hesitant, or if I had a daughter, I would understand her being a little hesitant, thinking twice about this, thinking hard about this. And in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai says to Esther, in, in kind of trying to convince her, trying to encourage her, trying to, Build up her courage. He says, if thou altogether holds thy peace at this time. You know what that means? You'd be quiet. Keep, keep silent. Not speak up. Then shall their enlargement, that just means help, and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Now, I got to tell you, I read that verse reading through the book of Esther Many, many, many times before I realized what Mordecai was saying there. Do you, you, you pick up on what he's saying? Look, Esther, if, if you decide to let your fear keep you silent and not speak up on behalf of your people, you know what? God's just going to send help and deliverance from somewhere else. Huh. I read, when I finally got that, I'm like, of course. Mordecai knew the promises of God. He knew God promised he would not eliminate and annihilate the Jews. So if he didn't use Esther, well, then he must use someone else. He must send help and deliverance from, from another place. Now, now, if you're really following my message this morning, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Brother Paul, I feel like you're trying to get us to do a little bit more like praying and being salt and light. But this kind of gives us an out, right? I mean, if we don't do anything, just like Esther, well, God will just use someone else. Well, that's very perceptive of you. Um, I did say, though, at the beginning, you remember what I said at the beginning about the sovereignty of God? I believe God's in control. I, I believe God has a purpose and a plan for America. And he doesn't need Paul Smith, that's for sure. And he doesn't need you to accomplish that goal. However, you knew there was going to be a however, didn't you? I didn't finish reading that verse. Because the end of that verse is the most familiar phrase from the book of Esther, and one of the most familiar phrases in all the Bible. When Mordecai says to Esther, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, maybe... God made you queen for this very purpose, for this moment we're in right now. And the, and the truth is, well, we know the end of the story. We, we know she does act. We know that the king does not put her to death. And we know that God uses her to deliver her people, the Jews. But standing there listening to Mordecai, faced with that decision, she does not know what's going to happen. And she has to take, make a decision to take, to take a step of faith. Some might say a leap of faith to see if God may use her. 
And, and she was willing to risk her life to do that. And, and, and in trying to make this point about being salt and light, I say to you, how do you know God doesn't want to use you? How do you know that if, if you took a step of faith, much like Esther did, maybe, maybe with some risk involved, that God might not use you to be salt and light, to, to accomplish his will and a purpose. You know that you'll never know until you take that step of faith. Now, I, I have some other illustrations that I'm going to skip over and just get to my last point for time's sake. I, I said point number one, intercede for our elected officials. Point number two, influence is salt and light. Third, finally, and, and this is not long, interact as a Christian witness. What I mean by that is when you, when you decide that you're going to be salt and light, when you decide you're going to take a step of faith and try to make a difference in your community, try to make a difference in whatever sphere of influence you have, do so in a godly Christian way. You know, I, I believe God wants us to be light but I don't, and I think he wants us to be a bright light. But I don't think he wants us to be an obnoxious light. Not like, you know, like the guy who forgets to dim his high beams driving down the road at you where you can't even see. Uh, we don't have to be obnoxious for Christ, right? In fact, I, I'm going to guess, since this is what God's called me to do for a living, that I have spoken to more politicians about how they should vote on a particular piece of legislation than anybody else in this room. Maybe more than all of you combined, if you've never done it. And I'm simply saying, I see the value in doing that, but I never want to do it in a way where I hinder that politician from coming to Christ. That I'm such an obnoxious jerk that, that he wants nothing to do with my Savior. That he has to, you know, look past me to come to Christ. I think we need to, to act in a godly Christian way, being an example of Christ in our dealings in this area in particular. I, I said to someone this week, <clears throat> you know, it, it seems like <clears throat> there's two areas or there's two, two groups of people that Christians seem to have no problem treating badly referees at a football game and politicians you know we're, we're willing to say whatever all kinds of hateful mean stuff about them and those two groups uh, but I believe we need to be a Christian witness and honor the Lord in what we say and what we do in fact you know I, I I'm, I'm I'm closing I'm wrapping up I promise here but I I can I can appreciate that you might be sitting there thinking to yourself well you know, if we put these three biblical principles into practice. I, Paul, I got, I got no problem with that. You, you, you've presented this from, with Bible, and you've given us Bible principle for these points. I got no problem with that. But if we do those things, will America be, be saved? Will America be, be rescued? Will it, be, will it turn around? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I do understand 2 Timothy 3.13 suggests that things will get worse and worse until Jesus comes. But let me ask you a question. 
Did Jesus say, so sit on the sidelines till I come? No, he said, occupy until I come. And, and I want to close with a verse of scripture that is familiar to many of you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have this verse memorized. Second Chronicles 7.14, do you have that verse memorized? Sure, it says, if politicians will humble themselves and turn from their wicked. No, that's not what it says. We act like that's what it says. It's the politicians that need to turn from their wicked ways for America to be healed. But that's not what the Bible says. Because what that verse actually says is, if my people, which are called by my name. He says it two different ways, so there's no mistaking who he's talking about, you and me. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Healing can come to America. I believe it with all my heart. If, if, if the church would just repent, turn from our wicked ways, then God will heal our land. That's a convicting verse, isn't it? It, it kind of says the church is responsible for the condition of America. But, but let me leave you with a positive thought. It says that we have control as to what's going to ha happen in America. We don't have to rely on the politicians to save America. We, as God's people, can see America turned around.